Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Okay, we're in chapter 4, starting with verse 43, and we are going to get through, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, as my grandma said, uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Are you there? All right, here we go. It says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. In ways, this makes me chuckle. In ways, this makes no sense to me. Why go somewhere where you know you won't be honored? I mean, for me, why would I do that? (laughs) Why would I put myself in a place where I'm not going to be honored? But remember John 1.11. Do you remember what that said? He came to his own, and his own people, what? Did not receive him. So this has been part of the plan all along. So this makes sense. The plan was that he would keep coming and they would keep not receiving and that eventually that not receiving would turn into killing and that's the whole reason he came. Does that make sense? It says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. I think that's funny because he just said, I'm not going to be honored. And then he turns around and he comes, and what words stick out to you? And the Galileans welcomed him. That's kind of sounds reverse. But then we find out why do they welcome him? They welcome him because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem. How did they see it? Well, they were all there. They're his people. And remember, it was the Passover. It was one of the three um, uh, holidays that required them to go to Jerusalem. And so they had seen it. All kinds of signs and wonders had been done. And so that's where they're coming from. Um, Don't forget John 2, 23 through 25 as as it describes it. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so all of that we're seeing is playing out. But isn't it interesting that was the opposite with the Samaritans? That was not the case with the Samaritans. There was belief in life change, not because of signs, but because of what? The word. Her word of testimony and his word of teaching. And and actually, he did the opposite there. He did entrust himself to them because he literally told them he was who? The Messiah. Yet here, he comes back full circle to Cana where he performed his first sign and they want more. There had been a lot of miracles, but John chooses seven, and he calls them signs. What is a sign? The sign points you towards something, or it points you in a direction. And remember, that is the whole reason 
The direction is the whole reason he's writing his, his book. Do you remember this verse right up here behind me? It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. That's verse 30. Here's verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John had a purpose in picking these signs. He wants us to understand who Jesus is, not just what he can do. All right? And so we go into one of these. In verse 46, your Bible may say Jesus heals an official son. So it says, He came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So there was an official, had a son who was ill. When he heard that Jesus was in Cana, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was about to die. I think it's interesting. When he heard Jesus was in town. But what's the point? What else had he heard? He had heard all about what Jesus had done in Jerusalem. Um, and although the words, I love the words he chose, that he asked Jesus to come down and heal his son. And although this is really about the elevation between Cana and Capernaum, such different elevations, um, I still love the beauty of the text, don't you? If you will come down and heal. Isn't that what he's, isn't that what he's done? He put on flesh, right? He didn't, uh, he didn't think that, um, he didn't have to strive to be equal with God. He was God. But he poured himself out and he put on flesh to come down to heal us. That's what he's doing. But when this happened, when the man asked him to come heal his son, I wonder what the crowd started to do. I wonder if there was a buzz. It's on. It's about to happen. Here we go. I wonder how many would have followed him all the way to Capernaum to see the miracle. But Jesus answered the man. He said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, a better translation, and maybe your Bible already has it, <clears throat> would actually be instead of where it says, unless you, you people. Because the pronoun is plural. All right? So basically he's saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, believe what? Believe who I am. This wasn't just directed at the official, but it was directed at the entire crowd. So when I think about it, I mean, let's be honest, what did the official actually really know about Jesus? I mean, he hadn't been at the Passover celebration himself. He hadn't witnessed the miracles that Jesus did but he sure did hear about them. So the question is, is he going to be like the rest of the crowd who is just coming and saying, hey, unless you guys see signs and miracles, you won't believe? Or is he coming because he doesn't need a celebrity? He actually does need a savior. He is desperate for healing. He is desperate for a miracle. So we see him answer that he answers it, and he appeals again. And he says, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. 
Now, I think this is really interesting because it's more intimate. It's like, no, really, can you heal my baby? Because the word, uh, the word, the word child is more intimate than the word son in the first request. It's like he's getting down. Um, he is, in some ways, I see him drawing Jesus' attention away from this crowd who wants to see, uh, see signs and wonders and go, no, no. I need you to come with me to heal my baby. I mean, I can just feel that in my guts. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. It says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Oh, my word. Could you give me a little more? Right? But I don't think we need a whole lot more, to be honest. So Jesus gives the official a miracle without giving the crowd a spectacle. Let that sink in. He gives this man a miracle, a personal miracle, without giving the crowd what they really want, which is a spectacle. He heals with a word. He wouldn't see. Well, the father had believed the words he heard about Jesus. So the question is, now is he going to believe the words of Jesus? Could Jesus heal from a distance? Was his word powerful enough to heal without his presence? Well, what do we know? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And what happened? That Word put on flesh and dwelt among us. Why? So we could see God's glory manifest in front of us. Remember, these are signs. They are pointing to who Jesus is. The man believed and left without a word. I don't know why. I don't know why. Did he see some authority in Jesus' eyes? Was there something in the look, in the glance? I mean, we have stories of this in other places of Scripture. I mean, a glance can do a lot. Remember when Peter was in the courtyard, Jesus walks by and glances in his direction. We know what a look can do. Have you ever given your kids a look and you didn't even need to say a dadgum thing? Right? They, they had the whole paragraph playing in their mind just by one look. Oh my gosh, she's going to kill me. If I don't stop this right now, she is, I, I'm done. I'm done for. Right? But was it a look? Did he know authority when he heard it? I mean, he was an official. What does that mean? It actually means royal one. And it means that he's connected to a king in some way. Well, in that area, in Galilee, guess what king he would have been connected to? Herod Antipas, okay? Herod Antipas was not a good guy, okay? He, he was wicked. Um, he's the one I've told you about before who... Uh, went and saw his brother's wife and thought, no, I think she'd be best with me. And so he took her and ended up marrying his brother's wife. And when John the Baptist spoke out about it, guess what? Off with his head. I mean, this is a wicked man. Um, but the thing is, he recognized authority, 
He knew the power of a king's words, even a crazy one. He knew. He knew there were power. They were powerful. But this man didn't seem crazy. I wonder if we're finding out that this official is more like the Samaritans than the hometown folks. That he has less preconceived idea, and when he sees authority, he knows authority, and when he hears that word, he believes it much more like the Samaritan than the Jew. But Scripture just says he went. That's it. He went. I can't imagine. He began a 16-mile trek back to Capernaum from Cana. So this massive descent. I can't remember. I know that Nazareth is like 1,600 feet above sea level, and that's, you know, uh, Cana is just down the road on that same route. And by the time you get to Capernaum, I think it's like 700 feet below sea level. So we're talking about, I mean, a decent decline, 16 miles from someone who hikes on the daily. I hiked 1,600 vertical the other day. That's no joke, okay? And to come down, you think it's easier to come down? No. You're having to watch every step coming down. Your quads are burning, right? And so he makes this whole trek, this journey that honestly could have taken him between five to eight hours. I cannot imagine the tricks that his mind is playing on him. I mean, think about it. He hears the word, he makes the decision, he leaves, but then he has a stinking journey to take. You don't think, he, you don't think his mind ever play? does your mind not play tricks? To come up with questions, to, to start to possibly doubt? I wonder how hard he had to focus to hold on desperately to the hope that had just been given him. I mean, he had everything writing on what Jesus said. And by the way, he did not have his cell phone to be texting any changes at home. I mean, no, right? No. You remember those days when you just had to wait till someone got home? Or you had to wait till they called in praying to God they'd find a payphone and call you? before you'd lost your mind worrying about them? I mean, he didn't have that ability. He had the word of God, and that's it. And he went on this journey. He had no idea if he had even gotten to Jesus in time to even ask the question. Matter of fact, was it possible to have this kind of healing without his presence? But he took Jesus at his word. I can just imagine if it was me, and it has been me, If I would have been hiking the whole time going, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief, help my unbelief, I believe, I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. Have you ever been in that place? I think if you actually thought about it, you would realize you've been in that place a lot more than you think. But it goes and it says in verse 51, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Praise God. So he asked them. The hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, some, uh, most commentaries, I'm, they're all over the map, to be quite honest, but most believe it's between one and three in the afternoon. <clears throat> it says, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. The beautiful thing is that God gave him confirmation. Aren't you so glad? 
He didn't have to take the whole 16-mile trip. They came and met him. I don't know. In my mind, I'm like, they met him halfway, okay? I'll meet you halfway. And they gave him confirmation. He didn't have to wait the whole journey. Since he had not been there to see it, God allowed him to see it through the confirmation of others regarding what happened and the exact time of the healing. In a way, it's kind of funny, the crowd is the only one who missed this. The one seeking signs and miracles and a, and a spectacle, to be quite honest, they're the only ones who missed this miracle because he saw it not only through the eyes of faith, right, but he saw it through the confirmation of those who were there and they saw it and I'm telling you, it was, it was an amazing thing. Scripture says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. It says the man and his household believed. See, this is where I get stuck, and this is why it takes me so long to study, because I can't get thoughts out of, believe what? What did he really believe? Like, what did he believe? Well, I can give you one answer, enough. I don't know. Believe that this man had authority, that this man cared, that this man had power. Like, don't you think along the way his belief, his faith grew? I mean, even here we see this element of faith to come and petition this man to help and the faith that when he said, go, your son is healed, to turn around and take the trip back. But then we also see a faith that is confirmed. So what's happening to that faith? It's becoming stronger and stronger and stronger, and I love it. And so many people are like, oh my gosh, and by the way, this story challenges me in a personal level because for me to go to Jesus, to have to believe his word, not, hey, Shannon, your son will live. No, Shannon, your son lives. He lives, so go. I got it. He lives. I have him. He's with me. And you have to turn back and continue the hike and go with the fact that what? No, I can't see him. I can't see it, but I believe it. I believe his word. I believe his authority. I believe that for those who know Jesus Christ to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I believe there will come a day where the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise, and those who are left here will go up, and we will meet him in the air. I believe all that stuff, but, can't, but I still have a hike to go before my eyes reveal what my faith is telling me. And do you not think along the way that our mind plays tricks? Oh, are you kidding? Where you're like, do, do I even know what I'm, is this even true? Is this what, what, and but the beauty is, he doesn't, and you're just like, Lord, I have faith, I have faith, help my unbelief, help my unbelief. I believe, I believe, help my unbelief. And along the way, through people, through instances, through all kinds of things, what does he provide? Confirmations, little confirmations to keep you strong on that path. There will be a day. So there's all kinds of personal application in these stories, but there's also other applications as a whole when you compare it to other stories. And we're gonna see this because I think that just when we think we have a formula, the very next story tells us we don't have a formula because I have heard this taught so much about the fact it was all about this man's faith. 
right, that he got the miracle. It was, it was all about his faith, this amazing faith to take God at his word. And I'm not downplaying his faith. I think he had amazing faith. I think he recognized authority. I think he put the Jews to shame. And the fact that he could see clearly, more clearly who Jesus was and his authority, and he did turn and go on faith. And I think his faith grew. And I think he was an influence to his whole family because they got to hear the story and they believed But it's really interesting when you say, oh, okay, well, the healing and all this was dependent on his faith. And then we go to the next story. And to be quite honest, you don't see anything regarding faith or belief. Um, You don't see that. And it's really kind of opposite. Because in one sense, too, you see in this story uh, a dad who is willing to hike 16 miles there and back for his son, and yet in the next story, you see a man who says, I don't even have anybody to care enough to take me 16 feet and put me in the pool. On one hand, you have uh, someone coming to ask Jesus for a miracle, and on the other hand, this man didn't ask a darn thing. He didn't even initiate it. Jesus showed up and initiated, and he's the one that asked the first question. We're going to see it when we look at this next story. And you look at it and you think, why? Why is this? I think we have such a tendency to want to put everything in a principle. We want to put everything in an equation. A plus B equals C. And I'm going to tell you, it screwed me up in my life. A plus B equals C. If I do this, then this will happen. Praise the Lord. If I don't do this, Lord knows this ain't going to happen. And dear Lord, I mean, I don't know, right? But what you find out is when you look at these stories, they're all different. Just when you think you have it figured out, you don't. But isn't that our life? It's personal. The relationship is personal. Each story is different. Each situation is different. Maybe the miracle was because of faith. Maybe the miracle was given to produce faith, to grow faith. There are all kinds of different scenarios. Chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. There's lots of different versions of that name, uh, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Okay, let me give you some background. We don't know what feast it is. You could spend all kinds of time trying to figure this out. And the smartest people I know disagree. Um, I don't know. I don't know, did John include three Passovers in his time or four or what it was? Was it Pentecost over or Pentecost or uh, the Feast of Tabernacles? Um, But we don't know. But we do know that whatever it was, it was one of those three because he was in Jerusalem. And he ended up walking by a pool that was near the Sheep Gate. um, And it had five roof colonnades. It's known as the Pools of Bethesda. If you've ever been to uh, Jerusalem, you've probably been taken there on your tour. It is by the church, I think, of St. Anne's, 
and it's right there, and they, you can still see where the pools are. You could still see the columns where the colonnades were. Um, and the fact is, um, many invalids, it says, hung out there. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, from the context of the story, and because it was the last thing mentioned, we assume that this man had some form of weakness or paralysis. All right? But according to verse 7, look at verse 7. It says, when I'm going, another steps down before me. So it seems like to me, he had some mobility. I mean, I, I don't know if he rolled, if he crawled, if he had some kind of crutches that he had to help him get down there. The fact is, he had some mobility because no one was helping him. And so it just took him too long. He couldn't get down there in time, and someone always beat him. Now, with that verse, it brings up some other issues. Um, because some of the verses that have been in this scripture are no longer. So let me ask you, from what I have read, how many people in here actually had extra verses in their Bible that I did not read yet, okay? And so let me read what probably y'all's Bibles say, okay? There's an added bit on the end of three that I did not read, and then there's a whole verse four in yours that I did not read when I read my version, okay? So here's what their Bible says. Um, it, at the end of verse three, it adds, waiting for the water to move. And then verse four said, for an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Okay? That has been taken out of most of our versions today. So most of you don't even have that in there. Um, the reason that happened is because those verses or those lines simply were not found in our oldest, most reliable manuscripts. And probably what happened, it was probably commentary that was added later by a scribe, and that commentary somehow in the 1500 years moved from the margin somehow making its way into the actual text. But when they began to research it, realized it wasn't in the most reliable text, and it actually didn't even sound anything like John, they realized that this was commentary. But think about it. Can't you understand why that was put in there? Because if you didn't have that, and the guy said, well, I don't have anybody take me down and get me in the water before anybody else. If you were reading that, you'd be like, what is he talking about? You wouldn't realize that there was a legend that said that an angel came down and stirred the water and that whoever got in that water first would be healed. Where did that legend come from? I do not know. I see it as legend for sure. I, I mean, do you think God operates that way? Do you think he comes down, stirs water, and waits for the, the first one to get down to the pool so that they can be the ones healed? Right? I think it was a legend. Had there been a healing there before? Possibly. And maybe there was a healing for whatever reason. And then they thought, oh, this is a special holy place. And if I can get down there. I do know that it had um, two different con uh, contributors. There were two different contributors to this pool. So when the water would come in, it would change the motion of the pool. And you would see a stirring. 
And then you can also read that because of some of the minerals in that pool, that when the, the, the water flowed in and it got stirred, that it kind of had a red tint because of the minerals that were in that pool. I don't know. But anyway, that is, that is what this man is talking about. Okay, now we also find out that he has been an invalid for 38 years. Now, one thing it does not say, it does not say he's been here for 38 years. I've listened to a lot of sermons. I actually pulled up a couple yesterday and was listening to them. And it was almost like they were teaching that this man had been there for 38 years. It does not say that. It says he is an invalid. He's been an invalid for 38 years. Now, based on his own words, we know that he's been coming to this place for quite some time. Because based on his own testimony, he's missed quite a few what? Stirrings, okay? But we really don't know a whole lot more than we know because we don't know anything about his story. We don't know anything about his background. But Jesus did. He knew it all. He knew he had been in this spot for a very long time. I stopped and thought, whoo, that'd be a good journal entry. Have any of us been in, a, in the same spot for a very long time? Have you ever felt stuck in the same spot with no hope, no purpose? You're just in that spot, that old familiar spot. My question is, if he's in that spot, why does he keep coming? Do you ever think about that? Why does he keep coming? I mean, according to him, he's got no one on his team to help him. So he never makes it first, yet he keeps coming. Why? Well, he has to be getting something out of it, or you wouldn't keep coming. I don't know what he gets out of it. Maybe he still has a little bit of hope that he can roll into that water faster than somebody else. I don't know. Um, Maybe he likes the fact that he can be around other people like him. He likes the shade. There are people there like him. There's no judgment there. Um, You could come up. The question is, well, why do we keep doing the same things that never seem to work? Well, sometimes we just get to a place where we really don't know what else to do. That's just our routine. This is what we do. I get up. I get myself ready or whatever. And I go to that same familiar place and I park my butt there until the day is done. And then I go and I do it all over again. And it's just easier to keep doing the same thing, especially when you just at this point have no clue what else to do. I honestly don't think that this man slowly made his way to the pool every day truly expecting a miracle. I don't. I think he expected a day just like the day before it. So that's why the question is so powerful. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? It's a good question. I think you can ponder that. (laughs) But I actually think this is where the stirring really begins. Like if we had sound effects in the back, I think that question would have been, (laughs) now things are starting to stir. It's not about an angel coming into the water. It's about the Lord Jesus asking a question. And now things are starting to stir. The man answers, but look at his answer. It's really, I would call it more of 
an excuse. What about you? Or a reason. How about that? Excuse is a little rude. He, he gives a reason. Most of the time when we give an excuse or a reason, it's because we feel what? Judged. Well, that makes sense to me, considering his culture. Because what does his culture believe about infirmities? Do you know? <clears throat> the disciples actually asked about it one time. So is this man blind because of a sin that his parents did? Or, or, or what, why? What, what, what's the deal? So this culture believed, right, that the infirmity was either a result of the person's sin, or if not them, the sin of their parents. And so, honestly, the infirmity itself was kind of like a judgment, which heaped on him a whole lot of shame. And so when you think about the shame that he was feeling, I wonder if it was that shame that cried out in defense. I've tried, but I have no one on my team. Someone else always gets it. It's not my fault. Mm. Or maybe it was about self-judgment as well. Maybe he knows that he just keeps coming out to a place of comfort around others like him to lay on a really familiar bed. He has lost hope, but is still continuing to go through the motions. I don't know. But what I do know is it is so easy to judge someone else's life when it's not stinking mine. I don't know. I don't know what all is going through that man's Mind. And I could call him a victim if I wanted to. I could, oh, look at that victim mentality, and I could call it that. But to be quite honest, unless you've lived the life of that person, you have no idea. And I think it's interesting that Jesus, who has every idea, gives no commentary or he doesn't give any commentary or judgment on this guy's life or on his comment. Because I think to Jesus it's irrelevant. It's neither here nor there. What's relevant is that I'm standing here with you right now. What is relevant is that you do have someone on your side. What is relevant is that I'm on your side. And so I'm telling you right now, you're talking about never being the one. Well, buddy, today you're the one. Because I'm telling you, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. But at that point, we don't get any description of what that happened. We don't get a description from him. We don't get a description from the crowd. Nothing. Jesus fades out of the crowd. And then the story continues, and it says this. Now the day was the Sabbath. Okay. Not only did Jesus cause a stirring within the man, but I think this healing was really about to stir some stuff up, right? Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Oh my goodness. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. 
Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? All those verses. Can I just tell you how not simple that is? When you start reading through some of these verses, you're like, wait a minute. All right, so I'm going to do my best. I'm going to give you uh, the Hoffpower version, and you're free to disagree. But this is how I see this story. It's the Sabbath, okay? One thing we know, the Sabbath was given to man. It was a gift. In the Old Testament, we learned basically three things about the Sabbath. And you can remember them because I'll make them all start with ours. All right? Number one, it was a day of rest. It was a day to be free from toil, okay? It was basically, let me give you the garden back for a day. Enjoyment, all right? That's what it was. Um, A breath, um, freedom, a respite. So it's about rest. It was also about uh, relationship because it was, he says in the Old Testament, let this day be a sign to you and to the other nations that I am your God. Like an engagement ring, like a wedding ring, it was a sign. What they did every day, giving God a date day every week was a sign, not only to remind them of their first priority of their first love, but to show all the other nations that they were committed to this God. It was also not only rest and relationship, but it was a day to remember He says, now I want you, in the Old Testament, says, I want you to use this day to remember what the Lord did for you coming out of Egypt. And so it was a day to to stop the toil, stop that worry, to enjoy, to enjoy a relationship with God. And when you're doing that, you're stopping to remember how awesome he is and all that he has done for you. I mean, it was, it's a gift. When you hear it that way, it just kind of makes you want to skip, Right? This man had just had a miraculous experience that really had the potential to be about all that. Makes you want to skip. You can see him. I mean, he was freed from his infirmity. Jesus also did this in another story where literally it describes a woman who was tied up in knots. You've seen handicapped people like that. Their their muscles have gotten hard and they're in they're almost literally tied up in a knot and it says that he loosed the woman can you imagine what that looked like for her to finally relax i mean this is the the vision that you see with this man everybody is celebrating he has new life and new hope and a new beginning i can't even imagine the smile on his face he's walking possibly skipping i bet he's breathing different everything seems new he's free Until, until the religious leaders try to cripple him once again with their laws. Instead of rejoicing with this man, they literally pick him apart. Instead of focusing on his new life and his miraculous healing, they focus on his old bed that he is carrying. I'm going to tell you that'll preach right there. (laughs) I'm not going to do it. But I'm going to highlight that later because if I ever need a really good sermon, I think that line right there can preach. They are too busy. According to uh, Professor Proverb, if y'all remember who that is, uh, Brian Glubish, he says, they are too busy straining gnats 
and swallowing camels. I love that. It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful to take up your bed. The man answered. Um, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Okay, I am telling you, this is taught by, with such a slant sometime, like, like, like he's this perpetual victim always blaming someone else. You'll hear sermons like this, that when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Well, I want to be. Well, I don't have anybody to help me. It's not my fault. And then when they say, well, why are you picking up your mat to walk? Well, it's his fault. I don't see this as the blame game. I think he's just like, um, well, the man who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. Um, so hot power version is like, um, I'm not sure you quite understand. Something amazing has just happened to me. I've been healed. Do you recognize me? Possibly you've seen me around the pools. <laughs> Maybe I look a little different to you right now. But this man who healed me told me to pick up my bed and walk. And I'm sorry, but in amazement, I didn't even consider that by doing so, it would be breaking the Sabbath, that I was forbidden to do that. I'm sorry, but when that man healed me and told me to pick up my bed and walk, I'm sorry, it just slipped my mind that I should have rebutted him and say, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do that because it's the Sabbath. Like, really? I'm so That's just how I read it. Like, he is okay. And they say, all right, well, who is this man? <laughs> and the man would be like, well, I, actually, I would really like to tell you. I really would. I would like to help you guys out, but I don't know. I don't know. He healed me. It happened so fast. And when I looked up, the crowd was around me. They were all amazed. Yeah, I've been lame for 38 years. And somehow he had slipped away. And I, re I really don't know. Right? I don't know. I put, some would say that Jesus slipped away and left this poor man holding the bag. I mean, the bed. <laughs> Do y'all think I'm as funny as I think I am sometimes? I was like, well, that was good. <laughs> Oh, the question. But had Jesus really left him holding the bag? I don't think so. Look at verse 14. It says, afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. Bless you. Jesus found him in the temple. Why is he in the temple? Okay, so that's a, that's a good thought to think about. I'm not going to finish this, but I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> you're just going to have to wait, but why is he in the temple? Some thoughts might be, okay, well, he just got healed. So he's there celebrating. Woohoo! You know, worshiping the Lord for once, he can walk in the temple. Uh, or that he's sacrificing or even uh, experience a sacrifice for cleansing, to be whole again. I mean, you could come up. But why is he in the temple? Well, I think he's in the temple because I think the religious leaders have taken him in the temple. That's what I think. I think he's walking. I think they have been scanning what is going on because Jesus has done this many times before. They are watching out for him in the last <clears throat> Passover. It was an issue and they are watching something has happened at the pools of Bethesda. There's a crowd. There's been a healing. Now they found a reason to begin to interrogate that guy and they've picked him out. And I believe all of this is occurring right by the temple. And remember, it is whatever 
um, holiday, so they're all out. Everybody's there, and I think they pull him in. I think now he is in the temple because I think that he's being interrogated. How serious was this offense? Do you realize they could have actually put him to death? If they wanted to hold to the letter of the law, if they wanted to find one precedent to do this, they could. Numbers, oh, I think it's Numbers 15, and it's verse 32. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I'm not going to go into what is happening in this story. It is a very different situation. But if they were looking to fulfill the letter of the law and not the spirit of it, and they wanted to find a precedent, there it was. They could have put this man to death, and I promise you that's what they're threatening. That is what they're threatening him. So here, can you imagine this man? Here, he is alone again. He is alone again. How did this happen? How did I go from skipping and being healed and feeling this freedom to now I am under this interrogation and threat of death? Man, I am alone. But was he? Jesus shows up. Isn't it interesting that Jesus shows up just in time, making sure the man knows who heals him? Man, I want to finish this story. He knows, right? He shows up just in time. So before I end this story next week, I want you to just ponder some things. Look at the order of what is happening here. He's being interrogated randomly. You think John randomly put in that Jesus showed up to make sure that this man knew who it was that healed him. He's going to tell him some very interesting things that we're going to go through, okay? This whole go and sin no more issue. And then when you look at the fact that he then testifies that it was Jesus, can I just ask you to give the man the benefit of the doubt that he didn't actually go... Um, turn Jesus in or rat him out. I think now he fully knows who did it and he has given testimony to who that is. And don't you think that that was the intention of Jesus all along when he showed up? Because what is he saying to the religious leaders? Hey, he's irrelevant. You actually don't give one darn about him nor his bed. Who are you after really? Me. So guess what? Let's go. That's how I read it. Now, we're going to break it down uh, because I do want to talk to you about go and sin no more. And if you don't, something worse could happen to you. Okay, what was that? Um, was that encouraging? Was it not encouraging? What, what's happening there? So we're going to talk about all that. But I also want you, we're also going to look at the two stories side by side. We're going to look at Jesus' answer and as you're studying the rest of the story, I also want you to realize that all of these, John is specifically picking, 
Why? As signs so that you will know who Jesus is and you would believe in him and have life in his name. Don't ever forget that. John is laying out a beautiful argument for who Jesus is. Um, So I can't finish. Let me think of one thing to tell you at the end because I'm just in the middle of my story. Well, I don't think Jesus ever leaves you holding the bag. How about that? I don't. I think he is showing this man in a really big way, not just by the fact that he healed him at the pool, but that he comes and shows up later because I do think he wants the man to know who he is and know who healed him. And I believe that God is for us. I was listening to that song, The Blessing, on the way here. Oh, my gosh. I was like a charismatic wild woman. I was driving my truck, raising my hands, singing. And I love that part where she just continues to repeat, he is for you. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. So how about we realize that he is for us? And how about we have the attitude that we're for others? We're for them. We're not against them. We're not there to strain gnats and swallow camels. We don't want to hold, we're not, you know, oh, the letter of the, the spirit of the law. We need to look at other people. How are people going to know that we're Christ followers? Because we love God, and by doing that, we allow that kind of love to flow through us towards what? Other people. Life's not an equation. Quit looking at it that way. Let's have empathy. Let's show grace. Let's have mercy. Let's know the word, but let's do those things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you, God, for the depths of these stories. I thank you that we get to learn through other people. Lord, I thank you that we're still learning through other people, although their stories aren't on the pages of scriptures. We hear testimony. You are still alive and well working in the lives of people. And so, God, may we share those testimonies. May we be willing to share our vulnerabilities so that um, others can see your greatness. Lord, please give me eyes to see and ears to hear as I love people. Give me your uh, just beautiful blend of grace and truth. Lord, I pray that our relationships will grow deeper with you. That's the end game. You're the prize. It's not about um, finding a celebrity. Lord, I needed a savior, and I am so thankful that you never leave me nor forsake me. I thank you that you walk that hike with me until my faith will become sight. Um, You're amazing, and you're the anchor of my soul. And to be quite honest, Lord, if you were removed, I would think life was emptiness. And so we love you and we worship you today because you so deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.